to another episode of Sean and Ed's Do Baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed's. And we're bringing you some baseball history on this wonderful fall day. That's right, we're in the middle of the fall classic, and uh, today, the as usual, the story catcher doesn't know what the story pitcher is going to be pitching to them, and you're pitching today, so... Absolutely, and I got a I got a World Series story for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, super excited to be... Bring in the, the, the heat on, on the cold autumn days. The fastball. No, I, well, kind of. I'm just saying, this story has a lot to do with weather. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. We're going to talk about a couple of teams here. I always was interested in the weather units in uh, public school back well, in the day. Yeah. I'm, in I'm, science class and stuff, you know. Fantastic. My... I, I'm not even going to say, but no, there's sort of digress. No, I know. I was like, my wife wants to do a documentary on clouds and I'm like that. Nobody cares at the moment. I do. I mean, I do. I I do too. Um, but there's definitely some lay lowing, lay lowing, low Low lying, low lying clouds involved in this story. But first people should probably follow us on Twitter. At right. doing baseball, mm-hmm. and on Instagram at doing dot baseball, TikTok at doing baseball, and uh, my personal Twitter is at Ed's do baseball, and I'm at Sean do baseball, uh, and whatever you're listening, give us a review, give us a rating, you know, hit subscribe, do that, yeah, engage on, uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and of course, uh, thank you for listening. Of course, okay, so we're gonna jump into this because this is a long one. I didn't expect it to be this long. Okay. But we're going to talk about a couple different teams here. Two teams at different trajectories. But first, we're going to preface this with the New York Times, who called Game 7 of the 1925 World Series the wettest, weirdest, and wildest game that 50 years of baseball have ever seen. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So, wet, wild, and weird are all phenomenal ways to describe what took place on Thursday, October 15th, 1925, mm-hmm. when 42,856 baseball fans packed into Forbes Field in Pittsburgh for a 2 p.m. start and witnessed a game that was either a spectacular comeback or a bitter stolen game, which probably shouldn't have even been played that day. Hmm. Okay. So. It must have been stormy. Oh, it was stormy. But really, I, I honestly thought we were going to talk about just that game, but the entire World Series and these two teams facing off in it is great. So we're going to start off uh, by introducing these teams, and one more so than the other, uh, just because I read a book that focused on one of them and <laughs> not the other. <laughs> you have more information on one than the other. That yep. makes sense. Um, but makes the sense one why I cover one more than the other. Yeah. The one we won't focus on as much here is the American League's Washington Senators because they're the big shots. They're the reigning World Series champs in 1925. Uh, they're, you know, already at the peak of baseball. Mm-hmm. That's a weird position for Washington to be in. It was a rare, rare yeah. occasion. Yeah. Um, and the other team... First we're gonna... in politics and last in the American League. <laughs> yes. <laughs> at the time, not so or much. Something like that. Yeah. So, uh, the rising Pittsburgh Pirates were the National League team, mm-hmm. uh, but New York clubs had really dominated baseball in the early 20s, with the Yankees and the Giants, of course, being the two big teams at the time. Yeah. Uh, the Giants were World Series champs in 21 and 22. Uh, they had continued their dominance in the NL over the next two seasons, but came up short in the 1923 uh, World Series. So... Um, yeah, the Senators had been woeful at best throughout most of the club's 23 seasons, uh, never giving their fans any real hope for a pennant, as you discussed, mm-hmm. other than a late-season charge in 1918 that still found them in third place and four games back at the end of the war-shortened season. 
even with arguably the greatest pitcher of the era on the mound uh, for them with Walter Johnson. There you go. Uh, the the team, <laughs> yeah, the team continued to flounder until 1924. The Senators had finished 23 games back in 1923, and on June 11th, 1924, they sat at 22 and 24 on pace for another mediocre to bad season. But suddenly the flip switched, and the team caught fire. By the end of July, they were 56-43, and 43, just a half game back of Babe Ruth and the Yankees. Okay. So despite losing, uh, or despite a six-game losing skid in August, the Senators tore it up the rest of the way uh, and ended out the Babe, ended out the year uh, two games up on the Babe and the Yankees to go capture their first pennant. Uh, nice. Yeah, so they're in the World Series for the first time. Uh, that World Series is a whole other story that one of us will probably talk about another time, mm-hmm. uh, that the Senators ended up winning in seven games and capturing their first World Series. So they're the champs, as I said. Coming back yeah, with a chip on their shoulder, target on their back in 1925. Yeah, and, and people honestly thought the Yankees were the still going to win. Mm-hmm. In 1925, they're like, "Oh, the Senators got lucky." Mm-hmm. You know, they're horrible. You know, they're not horrible, but you know what I mean. The Yankees were the good team. Uh, they were wrong. Ruth would actually have a down year in 1925, battling stomach ailments, and the Senators blasted off to a fast start and s- singling to baseball fans that 1924 was no mere aberration. Okay. Yep. So, so they're like. We're not, uh, we're not just a flash in the pan here. Yeah, so they just fucking come out bad out of hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the end of June, uh, the AL was a two-team race between the Senators and the Philadelphia Athletics, uh, with everyone but one team being double-digit games back. Uh, on August 15th... Oh, wow. Yeah, on August 15th, the Athletics sat a game and a half up on the Senators, both teams steamrolling the rest of the league to the tune of a 66% winning, or to a 66 winning percentage. Uh, 666, whatever. They're winning yeah. two out of three games. Yeah. And then Connie's Max, Connie Max Athletics completely shit the bet. Over the next three yeah. weeks, they went 2-16 and 16 and fell nine games back of the Senators. Okay, so they're kind of walking in with it. Yeah. Yeah. So they cruised. Uh, they finished off the season uh, and... They awaited their opponent. So, in the NL, it looked as though nobody could dethrone John McGraw and the Giants. But a crappy team from Steeltown was slowly making their way up the standings during the first part of the decade. A crappy team or a scrappy team? I said scrappy. Okay. Scrappy, it's Steeltown, like scrappy, steel. Makes sense. No, yeah. I get what you're doing. I just I wasn't <laughs> sure. I was like, it sounded like you might have said crappy. I'm not sure. Like, is this like the ultimate underdog story or is that just a metaphor? Yeah, so, okay, I'm glad we clarified. Scrappy yeah. team. From Steeltown. Well, and you're going to see, it's it's a really different kind of thing, as, as we're going to get to here. They, they really do things a little differently. They had been a model franchise, as we talked about in our previous episode, uh-huh. uh, winning one World Series and losing another in the first decade. Uh, but the team's success had fallen off throughout the 1910s, uh, but a new cast of characters debuted for them in the early 20s, and the team found itself in the 1924 pennant race. Led by youngsters... Which is, this is one, so I gotta address this right away. It's Kiki, but it's not Kiki. They call him Kai Kai. <laughs> okay. It is K I K I. But I looked it up, it's Kai Kai. Mm-hmm. So you checked the pronunciation. Yes. This time. It's Kai Kai Kohler, uh, Pie Trainer, Glenn Wright, Emil Yeed, uh, along with, alongside veterans Rabbit Marinville, Wilbur Cooper, and Max Carey. The Pirates excited fans as they were just one and a half games back with eight to go and three games set against the Giants coming up. Okay. So, as they say, one and a half back, they're about to play the Giants. Tense moment in the season. And they lose all three. Oh, fuck. <laughs> so. So they're four and a half back now. Yeah, it's done. Yeah, okay. there's five games left, and they're four and a half Ooh, back. Yeah, okay. so it's over. Yeah. Um. So the Pirates would fall short in 1924, but 1925 would be different. Some blamed manager Bill McKechnie for not being disciplined enough for his players, including some of the veterans, 
who at just 38, McKechnie was only a few years older then. Okay. They are like, yeah, this guy's just a baby. Yeah, he's, 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 he's got the young manager, yeah. and they're like, oh, yeah. he can't control the veterans because he doesn't command respect. Because they don't respect him. Yeah. So respect this child. <laughs> it's 38-year-old child. child. So McKechnie had both started and finished his career in Pittsburgh and was around for the initial glory days of the franchise. However, when he returned in 1920, the team was very different. Uh, he was a Pennsylvania native and utility infielder in his time, and in 1920, at age 33, he played just 40 games for the Pirates before retiring and transitioning to uh, a coach or manager. Mm-hmm. So he stays with the organization, and two years later in 1922, at the young age of 35 at the time, Bill McKechnie uh, was managing the Pittsburgh Pirates. Okay, so he's... He's three years younger than the other guy. Yeah. No, this is the guy. Oh. What? In nineteen twenty two he was thirty five. Oh, okay. So in nineteen twenty five he's thirty eight. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Your dog is I'm distracted by my dog. Yeah. He's fucking Yeah. Yeah. Um so he running all over the place. So Bill McKechnie, the manager, mm-hmm. uh, from 1922 on, would manage the team alongside Pirates owner Barney Dreyfus. So Dreyfus would do all the, the ownership stuff, and McKechnie would be kind of the GM president, also manager. Okay. I thought you meant like the owner was like also helping to manage. I was like, that's problematic. <laughs> that is, yeah. that's, they work in tandem, though. So on October 27th, 1924, McKechnie addressed one issue uh, of consternation for him by trading Rabbit Marinville, along with Wilbur Cooper and Charlie Grimm, to the Chicago Cubs for Vic Aldridge, George Grantham, and Al Niehaus. Uh, Marinville was a fan favorite, but also a pain in the ass, who will one day have his own episode. <laughs> okay. It was a risk, and McKechnie knew it was a trade he, he couldn't lose if he wanted to keep his job. Okay. Yeah. The high stakes. Yeah, so Marinville it's on thin ice. had been a star with three top ten MVP finishes, whatever the voting system was back then. Okay. Including he finished, won a bunch of cars. <laughs> including finishing seventh place in 1924, the year before he got traded. Mm-hmm. So, so he's, not, still, he's still a he's star still player. Star player, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But his escapades off the field and his age nearing the mid-30s, he was shipped off for younger and probably better players, especially in the case of George Grantham. He kind of gets the short end of the stick later, but either way, he was pretty fucking good. He was well-thought-of prospect. Yeah. Uh, young player, at least. Yeah, and he's like 24. So okay. Wilbur Cooper and Charlie Grimm, uh, the other two sent packing with Rabbit, were also notorious holdouts, and the trade was rather convenient for Mr. Dreyfus, who received one veteran and two rather cheap young players. So, yeah. He gave away two older guys and one young guy for two young guys and one older guy. Okay. So they're... They're, re- they're trying to rebuild, sort of? Kind of. They're But they're following this, so... They're falling. They're, you'll you'll hear he he's one of the first guys to really build build around youth and be okay. like, oh, I got to get rid of these. Probably because the press was like, he can't manage guys that are the same age as him. <laughs> so <laughs> so, he's so he answered that call by just being like, I'm gonna get a bunch of 24 year olds on my team and mm-hmm. we're gonna be awesome. <laughs> and they're cheap. Yeah. See. And the papers were like, see, we're right. Yeah. Um, So McKechnie threw even more fuel on the fire at the MLB meetings in December, saying, Our big trade with Chicago added to the hitting and base running strength of our club and also deprived our roster of a couple of clowns. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, so he's like fucking... So they're like, we got this true uh, addition by subtraction because we got through these two guys who are part of the circus. Yeah. There's a circus with these guys around. Yeah, so the team also chose to move on from their oldest player, 38-year-old catcher Walter Schmidt, who had been around forever. Okay. Uh, But uh, it seems like totally the thing to do these days, but I guess at this time, time, it's like, yeah. uh, yeah. They're fan favorites. That's your guy. Yeah. That's our guy. That's Walter. Yeah. You can't trade Walter. Yeah. He's 38. (laughs) He's just a baby. (laughs) (laughs) So McKechnie had a plan of developing young players and a solid long-term core uh, into a solid long-term core uh, 
as soon as his tenure began. So it was pretty easy uh, in those days to do this, considering if you could develop or make get a player, there was no free agency. So he couldn't Yeah, they leave. were just, that was your guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but much like today, Bill chose to rebuild rather than keep veteran fan favorites around. Uh, so what he said, we regret Schmidt's departure, but it was in line with our policy to reconstruct. So he literally says reconstruct. So they're like the rays of, yeah. of these days. Almost. I mean, yeah. not quite that cheap, but you'll see. No, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm just taking a shot at the rays. <laughs> so you McKech- know what I'm saying. Yep. Uh, McKechnie was innovative for his day, and when it came to youth, uh, when it came to youth, And in 1924, even in the midst of a pennant, he had turned to his core of youngsters and knew the experience in tight, anxiety-inducing games may one day pay off. He told the press on the cusp of the 1925 season, We have been going through a process of development, and it has not yet been completed. Okay. So he's always selling hope. Selling hope for the future. Exactly. Okay. These young guys, you know, we almost did it, but they just needed to get more development yeah get a few of the right pieces develop these guys a little bit more get the few right pieces maybe sign one veteran we'll we'll get over the top yep so by the time opening day came around the common mantra you hear all the time these days exactly ahead of his time so youth movements in full effect for pittsburgh by the end of the 1925 uh uh, of their top 10 players to play games in that in that year only one would be older than 30 no. That would be Max Carey. Damn. Awesome. Uh, uh, compare that to four out of the ten the year, two years prior. So he really, you know, kind of brings the age down. These players were not rookies, but right in that sweet spot, MLB managers drool over. Uh, two to four years of experience and in their physical prime, you know, 24 to 28 years of age. Mm-hmm. Um, when the season started, the Pirates kind of sucked. They went... 7-12 and 12 through the first four weeks of the season, and to make matters worse, they had lost three, uh, three to four... Oh, <laughs> they lost four to three to Rabbit Marinville and the Cubs. For some reason, I wrote it three to four. Okay. <laughs> I don't... That just fucked my mind up completely. Um, so the Pirates' loyal fans were quick to grumble about the trade that nearly none of them approved of. So early in the year, of course, they lose to the Cubs, and everyone's like, fuck McCackney sending Rabbit over there, because that's his name. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but their tune would change soon. Uh, As the Pirates turned it on in mid-May, and by July 1st, they were in a dead heat with the Giants and seven games up on the rest of the National League. So just like in the American League, it's a two-team race. Okay. Meanwhile... in the race with the Giants again. Yeah. Pirates and Giants. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The Giants did not give them as rough of a fight as you might think. As the Pirates widened their gap throughout the month of August, uh, once the lead had grown to just four and a half games, fans began sending in reservations requests to the Pirates ticket office for World Series tickets. (laughs) Okay. So they're counting their chickens. Yeah. The team owner had asked them to stop, had to ask them to stop until they actually clinched. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so bad, bad juju, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I will say also, uh, the senators on the other side, um, manager Bucky Harris was also confident in, uh, the, in the pirates. Uh, and he was a little bit more uh, balanced though so he he said to the press i'd like to see the pirates in the next world series we'd beat them for sure but the giants <laughs> will give them a rough fight so okay you know he's he's uh, he's high on the pirates too so in late august uh the pirates put the nail in the giants coffin uh with a three-game lead and a five-game series coming up against the giants so this time i guess the players have developed because okay. They they kick the Giants, but they take four out of five from the Giants to stretch their lead to six games. Uh, by the end of the month, it, it, it was eight games, and they were on their way to the World oh, Series. Damn, okay, so they ran away with it by the end. Yep. Oh, so 
In the American League, Bucky Harris's Senators had done just as he said and pulled away from Connie Mack's Athletics. Yeah, I told you all this stuff. They were led by veteran pitching staff of Stan Kovaleski and, of course, Walter Johnson, alongside a huge season by Goose Goslin, who was mm-hmm. awesome and, once again, a name. Uh, yeah. the- the Senator- Johnson's sort of getting towards the end of his career at this point, right? Oh, yeah. We, that's a huge part of this. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I don't want to jump too far ahead. Speaking of counting chickens, heads. Okay. Um, Sorry. So both teams had won their leagues by eight and a half games, but the two teams were certainly different when it came to franchise trajectories. The Senators were a team of veterans, most of whom had been through the ringer and prevailed in the previous World Series. They were led by a pitching staff featuring Johnson and Kovaleski, uh, who had both won 20 games and both of whom were in their late 30s. On the other side, the Pirates were led by a young, youthful offense of Pie Trainer, Glenn Wright, Kai Kai Culler, and... Uh, and one of the pieces of the Marinville trade, George Grantham, mm-hmm. who had also found a home at first base for the Pirates. At least one member of Mr. Burns's original. George Grantham? <laughs> no. Pie Trainer. Pie Trainer, of yeah. course. Yes, third base. Uh, it was veteran pitching versus youthful hitting, and sports writers were split on who would win. Okay. So half the world is like oh the pitching's gonna be too much and the other half is like this lineup's too good enough to hit anybody it's like the battle against analytics yeah (laughs) here's a fun fact pirates owner barney dreyfus hastily added ten thousand more seats to forbes field throughout september as it looked more and more likely that pittsburgh would clinch just like out there with a bunch of plywood like nailing (laughs) shit up himself that's barney yeah plans to get 10,000 more seats in by the end of the month. <laughs> Is that up to code? Code? What's a code? Yeah, it's um. getting cold. <laughs> Once that happened, World Series fever went off the walls. Hotels began selling out at a wild pace, uh, even with innkeepers charging double the regular price. Even still, rooms and tickets sold out fast. The pirates had to return thousands of envelopes of money uh, to people who had sent for tickets too late. The hotel situation got so bad. Oh, so, like, they weren't just writing letters no. being like, I want tickets. They, they were, s- like, sending money. Okay. And once they had actual, like, uh, packets went on sale. Yeah. Because you could get packets for the whole World Series. Right. Um, you And, you know, there'd be some, basically, you'll hear, there's some tickets available game day. Uh, mm-hmm. But you could... There was a certain amount that you could send in before the World Series, and so many people sent them in. They were like, "Okay, we've sold out we've on these sold packets yeah. or whatever." Yeah. So they literally had to send people with money back. Um, so the hotel situation got so worse in Pittsburgh that the Senators could not stay in Pittsburgh. <laughs> they couldn't mm-hmm. find a hotel. The team. Oh, really? The team secretary was it's calling. Not like they around. weren't allowed. It's just there was nowhere. There was to nowhere stay. to stay. Everyone was so excited. Everyone was coming into town. Uh, so, um, and once again, the fans probably got. I guess the Senators probably had to wait for them to clinch to like book a hotel in Pittsburgh. Anyways, that's, um, yeah, that's probably true. So the team had to stay. Uh, Outside of the city limits in Morrowfield, which is, you know, they just had to commute like half hour, 40 minutes into yeah, the city, which not is that, not that big of a deal. Not that big, but maybe more, fact. maybe a bit more of a big deal back then. Yeah. So the first game's in Pittsburgh. Now, Eds, remember, this is a time of prohibition and champagne showers were a big no-no. The federal government was going to do its best to ensure that the World Series went down with <laughs> zero alcohol. <laughs> Which is hilarious. But they send their top agents to Pittsburgh. And I'm assuming Washington, D.C. as well, but they're probably already in Washington, (laughs) D.C. Or they just didn't send. They're like, we can't bust the politicians. (laughs) We got no jurisdiction in D.C. Yeah. We can arrest the hardworking people of Pittsburgh. (laughs) (laughs) But not our senators for having a glass of wine. Uh, So they, they send all these people. That's just another fun fact there, too. Just got a whole bunch of fun facts so god knows uh fans in the series could have used a nip of something (laughs) thousands lined up overnight in the freezing cold rain as temperatures dipped to single digits celsius uh to get the fourteen thousand bleacher and standing room tickets released the day of game one 
The weather mm. would not How get... How many? There was 14,000 for the bleachers oh. that Barney was building out in the outfield <laughs> yeah. and then standing room as well. Okay. So about 42,000 people would... So they'd already sold about 28,000 tickets. And there was 14,000 left. There's more, I was going to say there's more available than I thought there would be. Yeah, I me, forgot that Barney was out there trapped <laughs> in his, his sketchy grandstand exactly. with, with, two, with one by twos oh and, and sticks and stuff. Yeah. This one's supported by the tree that was growing <laughs> out here in the parking lot. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and it's raining and cold. And yeah, so the weather would not get much He's better. selling s- seats on the deck of a tree house. <laughs> yeah. <a> kid's tree house. <laughs> it's just a tree. Yeah. You take it's just the tree. <laughs> uh, so the, the weather wouldn't get much better. Uh, and by the end, it would be known as one of the rainy, most rainy, muddy, and cold world series ever. Oh, yeah. And there's fog. But that comes later. Okay. okay. So the weather by game time was playable. And Pittsburgh crowd got to watch Walter Johnson do his thing, much to their chagrin. So, game one, Johnson pitches a complete game, five hitter, giving up just a single, uh, a single solo, a single run on a single solo home run in the fifth to Pie Trainer. The Senators would score four of their own and take the game four to one. Okay. So the weather warms slightly for game two, so it's nicer. Uh, but it's a bit of a nail-biter in Pittsburgh once again. So the format for the series is 2-3-2. Two, two. So two in Pittsburgh, three in Washington, two back to Pittsburgh. Okay. Uh, the teams exchange a single run each through seven innings, and it was a real pitcher's duel between 20-game winner Stan Kovaleski and another member of the, Mar- the Marinville trade, Vic Aldrich. And this... Okay. Basically, Vic Aldridge basically wins this trade in the series. I'm just going to throw that out there right away. That's why I mentioned that trade. It's a big statement. Yeah, because because, uh, Grantham doesn't do it. Anyways, anyways, so Aldridge and the Pirates would prevail and tie the series. They won, I believe, 3-2. As Roger Peckinpah and the Senators' first baseman would fumble a grounder, allowing a runner to reach in in the eighth, a batter later, Kiki Co- or Kai Kai Color went yard. Uh, you did it. <laughs> I did it. Uh, and gave the Pirates a 3-1 to one lead. But the game wasn't quite over as the Senators made the, the, the Pirates fans sweat in the ninth. The first three batters got on base, but Aldridge got a sack fly, a big K, and a ground out to end. And as I said, win 3-2. to two. With game three, okay. the series returned to Washington. As well did the bad weather. I was going to say, they're like, they wouldn't be too far off of the latitude, so they probably have the same yeah. weather. You know, they're both pretty East Coast. It sounded like this was just a shitty autumn. Okay. So rain greeted the World Series in Washington, and the Pirates uh, and World Series fans alike poured into the nation's capital. The initial attempt uh, at Game 3 would be canceled. But the next day, the sun was shining, but freezing cold winds swept across the field as the temperature was sitting in the high 30s, or around three, or around four degrees for us Canucks. Mm-hmm. So, in one of my, I was gonna f- say, you, it really got hot all of a sudden. Like, I thought you were still, I thought you were still in Celsius. Yeah, it was about 30 degrees in October. Swing, everyone's gonna get fucking sick. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's cold as shit. It's four degrees or high 30s if you're listening to this from America. Uh, in one of my favorite moments from baseball history, President Cal- Calvin Coolidge, who had received the Pirates at the White House earlier that day, threw out the first pitch. Cameras were set as the president wound up to throw the ball to none other than home plate umpire Barry McCormick for some reason. <laughs> well, they throw it from the stands back then, right? I guess. Uh that might make more sense for yeah, this. Yeah, that's what they did. That's what they did back then. So a fan ran from the stands, jumped out in front of the umpire, caught the throw by the president, and ran off. Was <laughs> oh. <laughs> he accosted by any players? No, no, no. He, I love it. It's just like he ran off. I'm like, I guess he watched the game, or did he just like run home? I got a ball the president touched. Wonder if that's the last time they did that. They're like, we should do the first pitch from the mound now. <laughs> So, once again, a reminder, it's cold as fuck, and the Pirates' bats were somewhat silenced. They had their chances, but they went 2-for-12 with runners in scoring position and lost the game 4-3. to three. Also, 
Uh, they hit a home run that got called a catch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so. Well, that fucking sucks. In the eighth, after the Senators had scored two to take a four to three lead, uh, Washington skip Bucky Harris goes to pretty much the first star reliever, Furpo May- Marbury. Furpo Marbury. Furpo Marbury. Oh, amazing name. Once again, probably get his own episode it's one not day. even a real name. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> Furpo <Doesn't> Marbury like- <laughs> makes quick work of the first two hitters, and then catcher Earl Smith connected with a ball and sent it deep to right field. Outfielder Sam Rice, who had just been playing center and been moved to right, was playing deep and tracked the ball. According to one writer, Edward F. Ballinger, Rice jumped into the air and toppled partly over a small fence in front of a low tier of circus seats. Which is what they described Barney's fucking homemade. <laughs> the Mickey Mouse seats. Yeah. He, he top, so he toppled over the fence? Yeah. So like it's got like a little short porch? Yeah, it's like a Yankee little short Stadium. porch. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he goes over, and that's home run territory. Mm-hmm. He emerged from the throng of fans with the ball in his glove, though he did not react with the zealous of a man who had just made a huge home run robbing catch. So he's just like... Yeah. But um, second base yeah, okay. umpire Cy Ridgler proclaimed it a catch from about 200 feet away. <laughs> <laughs> you're out! <laughs> yeah. Can't see, but you're out. Okay. So the Pirates and McKechnie, who was by all... Sounds of it a pretty chill guy. Once mm. again, probably why they were like, you can't control the clubhouse because mm-hmm. you're not an angry drunk. Yeah. <laughs> too mild-mannered. Much too mild-mannered to be a manager. <laughs> Let alone... You need to be uh, insane to be a manager. In the big leagues especially. Yeah. <laughs> so... Who have you fought? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so an enraged McKechnie eventually went to the box seat occupied by Commissioner Kennesaw Landis and stated that he would lodge a formal protest if the Pirates lost. It's just, like, ridiculous. He just, like, marches right into the into the face of the commissioner, like, right there during the game. Well, I mean, I think he yelled at the umpire first. <laughs> yeah, but still. Like... Well, so Landis tells him to fuck off. Uh, and the okay. ump ruled... It, well, Landis tells him, fuck up. It's like, a catch, man. The guy called the catch. What do you want me to do? Jump on the field myself? Yeah, there's no replay. Yeah. So to make matters even worse for Pittsburgh, with all the confusion after the play, they failed to notice the Senators batting out of order in the bottom half of the inning. Didn't really, didn't, nothing really much happened, but <laughs> okay. it did happen that they okay. batted out of order and the Pirates were so pissed off they didn't even notice. Mm. Um, even still, the Pirates battled. No will prevail. Yeah, so the Pirates battled and loaded the bases with two outs in the ninth, but would lose four to three, and the Senators were now up in the series two to one. Okay. So McKechnie wouldn't let it go. First one. McKechnie wouldn't let it go though. So he hunts down Landis after the game, (laughs) and presents him with affidavits from two men who were both Pirates fans. R.J. Asham and Sergeant Ralph Lewis, that a small boy in the stands handed the ball to Rice. McKechnie wanted to file a formal protest and grill the le- and grill the league press until Mr. Dreyfus stepped in and vetoed his own manager. Okay, so they got these two guys coming in with like, you know, formal yeah. letters saying it was a kid that that gave the ball to the guy. Yeah, these guys, they're fans that were in the stands, and they were like, no, he didn't catch it. Like, literally, a kid handed him the ball. Yeah. So, so uh, overturn this. Yeah. So, Mr. Dreyfus, though, is just like, nah, man. We're, it's too we're, late. It's too late. We're not doing a formal complaint. Sorry, Mr. Commissioner. And Dreyfus didn't want to cause controversy. He said to his steaming manager, we will take our medicine like men. <laughs> Which okay. is a weird thing to say when... You just got robbed of a game-tying home run. Yeah. But, but so okay, whatever. so that's what they're doing. Yeah. So Sam Rice, the outfielder, gave two statements about the play to reporters. One claiming that he had caught the ball. A later statement that he had, that he had said he had momentarily caught the ball before a fan grabbed it from him. Many Pittsburgh sports writers said the play was an acting performance of a lifetime. Okay. So. So, well, the stories are contradicting, but. Yeah. So he's sitting, some people are saying he's put on a strong performance, but the other account said he was 
did not look like a guy who had just made a well, made a catch. But. Well, I mean, now I think they might have said he was like giving a performance to the press when he said he did oh, catch okay. the ball. You I know? got you. Yeah, that's they were like, yeah, yeah no, you could see it was. I don't know. Maybe I guess if you could see his line, it's not a great performance. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I probably messed it up. Um, but uh, the thing was, with the extra day of rest, uh, Walter Johnson was ready to go again. And that's bad news for game four. Mm-hmm. So yeah, very bad news. Well, you just lost a controversial game, and now you got to face the big train again. Yeah. So, uh, so it's two to two now. No, it's right. Two to one. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's two to one, Sorry. and Walter Johnson's pitching in game four. Right. So he was a legend, and he pitched like a legend. He scattered six hits, two walks over nine, and shot out the Pirates four to nothing. The series was now 3 to 1 for the Senators. Oh, fuck. And it looked over. Mhm. As as it would cuz I guess at that time no one had ever come back from such a deficit. Nobody had. Uh and once again, even if you get to game 7 here, guess who's probably pitching? Walter Johnson. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. How have you done against him? Not good so Not far. Good. <laughs> uh so game 5 was to be held in Washington. Uh, on Columbus Day, October 12, 1925. The weather was not great. There was low clouds and scattered showers, but the fans of D.C. were pumped. It was Vic Aldridge versus Stan Kovaleski again, and once again, the Pirates hurler won the battle. As Aldridge pitched a complete game, allowing just three runs, Kai Kai singled it to left field in the seventh to put Pittsburgh ahead 4-2. to two. Senators would get one back in the seventh, but the Pirates would add a run in each of the in each top half of the last two innings, and Aldridge silenced the Senators' bats and their fans. The Pirates won six to three, and the series moved back to Pittsburgh, and it was three to two for the Washington. Okay, so Aldridge comes in, the stopper, and once again stops the bleeding and keeps the Pirates alive for one more day. There you go. He's okay. he's the day it's after the Marco Walter, Estrada. Yeah, day after Walter <laughs> Johnson pitcher that just comes in. So once again, that Marinville trade coming back pretty big. Okay. Um, so some Pirates fans who had made the trip uh, celebrated brashly on the streets of Washington, <laughs> even forming a snake dance down Pennsylvania Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing a conga line yeah, down the street. Down, like, down, da, da, da. We're down three to two. Ooh, we're down three to two. <laughs> Live to fight another day. day. Live to fight another day. <laughs> so, speaking of another day, game six was literally the next day. Okay. And recent rain and sleet had Forbes Field in Pittsburgh somewhat muddy. It was once again cold as fuck, but the sun. But the sunny did shine. That's what I wrote. But the sun did shine, and the rain after it rained all night. So okay, so best they could hope for, I guess. Yeah, it rained all night, but it was sunny during batting practice. Eddie Moore, Pittsburgh's second baseman and leadoff man in Game Five, hurt his hand and ran off the tree field to the trainer's office. Oh no! Before the game, Moore, who is just twenty-six, and really in his First full MLB season, he'd played a half season the year before, uh, was found under the bleachers holding his hand and crying. <laughs> Pirates legend Honus Wagner found the kid and asked him if it hurt that much. Moore replied, I'm not crying because of any pain, but I'm afraid I won't... I got sand in my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm afraid I won't be able to bat at my best, and I want to help the boys win today. So... You know, he's hurt. His hand is not... I guess he's still going to play, but mm-hmm. he's scared that he's not going to do it. through this inju- injury, and I'm going to suck. Yeah, that's what he's scared of. And Wa- Honus Wagner offers him some sage advice. And whatever the fuck he said fucking worked. <laughs> so You don't have the quote? No, I have okay. no idea what Honus oh, Wagner so said to him. It's a secret. It's, it's a, a secret, secret under the bleachers. It's a <laughs> It's a ninth green at nine type of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, the home crowd was quieted uh, by a two-out solo shot by Goose Goslin in the top of the first. But as the Senators took the field in the bottom half, Sam Rice was booed and heckled by the Pittsburgh faithful who had not forgotten game three. <laughs> okay. As they should. No. Moore hurt his hand, 
but was in the leadoff spot still and led off by ripping a single into left field. So nice. he got one hit. He gets stranded. That doesn't matter. Uh, the Senators would go up 2 to nothing though, uh, but the Pittsburgh... Where the Pirates would battle back to tie the game at two in the third with the help of another controversial t- call. This time going their way as a force out at second was called safe by umpire George Moriarty. <laughs> Moriarty? That sounds right. Yeah, as the ump claimed the Senator's shortstop never touched the back. Once again, uh, that's uh, Roger Peckinpah. So you're going to hear a lot. You've already heard about one error. Mm-hmm. He makes a lot of errors in this World Series. <laughs> okay. so, um, anyways, so it's controversial. Washington doesn't like it, um, but they tie it up at two. Moore once again stepped to the plate to lead off the fifth, and once again he connected, but this time he hit it all the way into the fucking clown seats. <laughs> <laughs> in the Mickey Mouse seats. His teammates met him at home and hoisted the young second baseman on their shoulders and carried him off the field, which was weird because it's the fifth. (laughs) (laughs) It was a weird time. Yeah, yeah. They were just, like, consistently counting their chickens before they hatch all through this story. Yeah, well, there's still four innings left, uh, but a one-run lead was all Ray Kremer needed to shut down the Senators over the final frames. The baseball gods smiled upon him in the ninth as Joe Harris smashed a deep fly to center field that hit the fence where it was highest. So basically, he hit it to the deepest part of the field with the highest part of the fence. Mm-hmm. If he had hit it, you know, a little bit right, a little bit left, it would have been a home run to tie the, the dudes out there with a the skill saw, like, cutting <laughs> the fence <in> <laughs> Yeah, well. Uh, It'll be a home run next game. Well, you don't want Harris to hit a home run. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, we're in Pittsburgh. Sorry. So Harris was kept to a double, and fans were on the edge of their seat, but Kramer got a pop-out and a ground-out to end it. And ladies and gentlemen, people, friends, Edzy, we're going to game seven. Nice. Okay. All right. Uh, but we'll have to wait once again, because more rain hit Pittsburgh, pushing game seven back from Wednesday to Thursday. So... This affects more or less everybody. Everybody gets a little bit of rest, but uh, Pittsburgh switches up. They kept going back and forth about who their pitchers were going to be. The field was a disaster, as the weather did not get much better by Thursday morning, and the grounds crew poured gasoline on the base pass and lit them on fire to burn off the moisture. (laughs) That seems sketchy. It was. It was incredibly sketchy. And some of the grass caught fire, too. So you got, like, a grass fire while it's raining. (laughs) So um, those who arrived early got quite the show as they watched the landscapers put out fires in the rain, which was still coming down. So, I mean, it's not pouring at this, like, it's just wet outside, you know, mm-hmm. it's just low clouds and wet, and you're just like, oh, it's been fucking raining, it's not really raining right now, but it's just damp and wet, Yeah, um, a little gross. misty. Yeah, finally... Good day for a duck. Yeah, finally, about an hour before game time, the rain stopped, and things looked like they might be okay. Landis toured the field and concluded that the conditions were poor, but he declared that the game would be played that day. Okay. He's probably like, we got to get this done. This is getting worse. This is getting worse. So, because of the delay, uh, they decided to throw Game 2 and Game 5 hero Vic Aldridge against Walter Johnson. All right. Uh, Mentioned he'd be pitching. Yeah, it didn't work out, though. So, I I know I said basically he wins the trade by that, but in the Game 7 in the first, he gives up four runs. Who does? Aldrich. Okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. So it's 4 nothing after one. And Aldrich is out of the game. <laughs> McKechnie's yeah. like, well, that was a mistake. Well, yeah, well, that didn't work out, so <laughs> let's get this guy out of here. Yeah, and... Damn, we lost the trade. And you're going up against Walter Johnson. Yeah. So things did not look good for the Pirates, as Johnson was on the hill for the third time, and he'd only given up one run in 18 innings. So Okay, that's... Uh pretty good and they got a four-run lead before he even had to throw a pitch so walter had strained his leg though trying to stretch a single into a double in game four and was mm. noticeably a little bit a little ginger on little it ginger yeah. so after two innings though 
the Bucks. I guess, yeah, this would be the time where the pitcher had to hit yep. the American League. Yep. So at this time, though, the Bucks got to the legend, rallying to make it 4-3 to three in the third. So they're within one. The weather worsened, and the rain fell harder. So all of a sudden, it just went from, like, Missy to now it's, like, raining. Uh, it's the third. It's 4-3. to three. As the game entered the fourth, fans began to have a hard time seeing the play as the fog and very low rain crowds began to settle around Forbes Field. Okay. <laughs> Still, the game went on. And the Sens struck... on through this fucking down... This foggy downpour, and they're just like, carry on. Yep. Uh, so the Sens strike for two more runs and go up 6-3. to three. The Pirates got one back in the bottom of the fifth to make it 6-4. to four. But Kennesaw Landis had seen enough. In fact, he, like everyone else, could not see enough. And now, with five innings in the books, he turned to Nationals owner Clark Griffith. Barney Dreyfus, the Pittsburgh owner who built all the shit, he was at home with a cold. <laughs> because yeah, he spent all the time outside building his stands and everything. Got rained on. Yeah. But Landis turns to Clark Griffith after five when, basically, it's a complete game if it gets shut down. Yeah. And says... You're the world champions. I'm calling this game. That's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. First of all, the other guy's there not to is not there to make his point. Yeah, but also just like, come on, you can't call a World Series game at, at game five innings. Seven. Game seven. Yeah, any game for that matter, but especially game seven. So Griffith, the Senators' owner, shares your sentiment, Edzie. And oh, he, okay. He replied to Landis. Once you start in the rain, you've got to finish it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so he was like, That's you... not what I was expecting. I no. thought he was going to be like, No, okay, we'll finish this tomorrow. Exactly. But no, he's like, Fuck that. The we game. Finish this in the rain. Yeah. All right. The game continued, and in the seventh, if it could, the weather got even worse. <laughs> oh, man. It was getting very dark now. Outfielders couldn't see balls leave the bat, and the base paths were channels of mud. This possibly caused the Senators' MVP shortstop, Peckinpah, to drop a pop fly hit by Eddie Moore. Another error. Okay. The next play... I guess Matt, there would have been no lights, right? No. No. It yeah. was started at 2 p.m., and it only took, like, two... It's just getting very dark very early, and I was gonna the say, rain but and yeah, the low clouds. It's like October. Yeah. It gets, you know, it'd be getting darker earlier. Yeah. The next play, Max Carey hit a fly ball, uh, a playable ball, uh, down the left field line that Goslin flubbed. So he runs, he overruns it. And the ball falls, and he's relieved because it hits in foul territory. Or mm -hmm. so he thought. Okay. So, the umps call it fair. Oh, and Moore fuck. scampers home to bring the Bucks to within just one. The Senators were the, their turn to be irate, and Glasslin, Goslin yelled at the umpires through the fog that the umpires could join him down the left field line where he could clearly see where the ball had landed in the mud. <laughs> so, Who said that? Yeah. <laughs> so he's like, come down here. I'll show it in lurch. Clear as day. <laughs> the umps did not do that. Uh, and two batters later... Pie Trainer smashed a ball into the gap, and Pirates fans went wild as Washington outfielders disappeared into the fog chasing after the ball. Carey came in to tie the game. Trainer with mud flying would try to for a go-ahead inside the park home run oh. in World Series Game 7, but the ball appeared out of the outfield miss and was relayed home where Pie was cut down by a mile, ending the inning. Oh, okay. <laughs> So, so it's what's tied. This? So it's tied now. It's tied. Say. It's tied. He was going for the lead. Yes. So Peckinpah, who is just destroyed with errors at this point in mm -hmm. the series. Can't believe he's still playing. Exactly. <laughs> he was the MVP of the league that year. Oh, okay. That's why he's gonna, still playing. Even I was going to say of the series? And he's a shortstop, <laughs> and it's muddy and rainy. and True. God, okay. Yeah, you can sympathize with him. but yeah. Well, he gets some redemption I'm here. Kind of, I'm kidding for the most part. I know, I know, I know. So he gets redemption. Here. So Peckinpah came up in the eighth with all the pressure on him to make amends for all of his errors. He did just that as he bashed a home run to left field to take the lead. The problem was nobody on the infield could see where the ball went until a fan yelled for all to hear, It's a home run! <laughs> <laughs> I mean... 
the other home run where the fan, I mean, yeah. it's all the circumstances. Okay, anyway, so. So tears were shed for a second time that day by a ball player as he rounded the bases because he was so happy because he felt mm-hmm. like he'd blown the lead for his team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he once again carried to the dugout by his teammates. <laughs> You're like, get under the bleachers with your crying. Uh, so Washington had uh, regained the lead in the eighth and were just six outs away from a title. In the bottom half, Johnson got the first two outs, but to get, began to show signs of tiring as he then gave up a double to Earl Smith. McKechnie went to his bench and, with Carson Bigby, who had had a very disappointing season to that point. So he calls on him, and everyone's like, what the fuck? Big B. <laughs> Hammerling for Mitchell. Yeah. So, of course, because baseball, he got to play hero for the home fans doubling home Smith with two outs and the tying run. Nice. It's 8-8 eight, eight hero. Yeah. It's 8-8. Eight, eight. Oh, shit. Oh, man. The big train gave up a walk to the next batter, and fans behind the Sands dugout, where most of the Washington fans in Pittsburgh were, pleaded for their manager to take out uh, Johnson. Mm. They were like, come on! Like he's falling apart! Get it's him out of there! 8-8! Eight, eight. <laughs> the train is derailed! Yeah, and I, I, this next part's amazing because it gives you a v- good picture. So, you know, Bucky Harris, who's the manager, sticks with his ace. The mound is in terrible shape. Yeah, Think about this. It's gotta so be. It's, they're using sawdust on the mound. So Johnson is covered in mud with sawdust caked all over him and is like dripping water. It's like just a fucking thing. And he's calling on the groundskeeper to come out and add more sawdust like constantly. It sounds like a mess. Yeah. Yeah. So then Should not be playing. Yeah. So there's runners on first and second Max Carey then hits a ball to none other than Peck and Pop who hurried his throw to second. Oh, for Christ's sakes, Peck and Pop. <laughs> <laughs> he sails it high, <laughs> pulling the second baseman off the bag. But he was able to catch it. The so okay. so safe. Right. This would be his eighth error of the World Series. Eighth error. Still of just the World Series. Still a record to this day. I was gonna say. So I figure it would be. Bases loaded. Tie game. Two outs. The mound is terrible, and Kai Kai Color steps to the plate. <laughs> Johnson gets ahead of him in the count, a ball and two strikes. Color fouls off some pitches. Next pitch completely fools Color. And as Johnson, by all accounts, threw a beautiful pitch, I read fastball, I read curve, I think it was a curve, mm-hmm. that caught the plate. But as the crowd groaned and Johnson took a step towards the dugout, the ump called it a ball. No. <laughs> of course, the next pitch... Kai Kai smashed down the right field line, and the ball rolled under a tarp. It was ruled a ground rule double, stopping all three runners from scoring, but it did give the Pirates a two-run lead with just three outs to go. The bone-soaked crowd went absolutely wild. So, the field was a disgrace, but at this point, Pittsburgh just needs three outs, and this shit show of a game is over. Yeah, McKechnie turns to Red Oldham for the last three outs. Oldham had only been on the team half the year and appeared in 11 games. He had yet to appear in the World Series. Okay. Just an odd choice. It's like, yeah, let's try this guy now. Yeah. When was the last time you pitched, Red? (laughs) Nine days ago? Why don't you get in there? (laughs) Well, you'd be well rested. I'm not stretched out. Get in there, Red. Uh, Didn't bring my glove. Yeah. (laughs) So, this has been long enough, so I'll just tell you. Sam Rice strikes out. He's furious because of what happened to Kai Kai in the bottom of the eighth. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, fuck, you call, you're not calling that on us, it's on them, and you're calling it on me. So they have to, like, take him off the field, and he's yeah. screaming and stuff. Bucky he's Harris upset. lines out, and then Goose Goslin is the only one left who Aldham strikes out on four pitches. All right. The Pirates were the so first... So prevailed with Oldham. Yeah, nice. the, the Pirates were the first team ever to come back from a 3-1 to one, uh, series deficit. 
uh, in a World Series, in any playoff series, I'm pretty sure, and their fans jumped the rails and mobbed the field. Fans would stay on the muddy field for over an hour, and you guessed it, they did a snake dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we won the World Series. We won, won the, the World, World Series. series. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> the fans... The groundskeepers were pissed. <laughs> the fans also... I'm sure there was no alcohol involved here. Fans stole all the bases, the pitching rubber, and about 300 chairs were ripped out of their foundations and taken 300 home. chairs? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Was this in Pittsburgh? Yeah. <laughs> so they are probably from the Mickey Mouse section. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's good wood. Yeah. <laughs> Fresh. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so the Sanders Clubhouse... Somber and distraught, especially Peckinpah, who Johnson found and embraced. Blame me, Walter Johnson said. Blame me. (laughs) I mean, it was Peckinpah. It was Peckinpah. (laughs) So fans celebrated on the Pittsburgh streets all night. Landis congratulated the team, and and McKechnie admitted to a reporter he hadn't changed his underpants or any clothes for that matter since game five. He said his first task as a world champ would be go home and get a, get a clean pair of socks and underpants. I've been sitting in my <laughs> shit for days. <laughs> you want to know what I'm going to do? You don't even know the disgusting lengths I'm willing to go to for victory of this team. And you've got me to thank. <laughs> Now, that's, fetch me my brown pants and a clean set of underwear. That's excitement when there's prohibition, people. Yeah. <laughs> clean underpants. Yeah. Um, so, um, sports writer Harry Cross of the New York Times wrote, No World Series has ever come to the sensational climax which marks the feverish finish of today's game. And that, Edzie, was the 1925 World Series. That's pretty intense. I, I I didn't know that was the story of the first three one deficit comeback, but yeah, uh, yeah, it sounds like that game should have just been called and uh, or just yeah yeah played any other day or wait. It sounded like the weather was just horrible the whole time. Even the nice days were super cold. Mm-hmm. So I mean, yeah, it's it it's fucked up that literally the Washington owner could have just accepted it and i'm so glad he didn't i was gonna say i'm glad that he didn't and the baseball gods had uh you know sort of their own retribution in there for uh even the even offering that notion for landis even offering that notion but well exactly it's like you made griffin paid i mean griffin paid the price but yeah but Landis made his own bed he walked out on the field and saw the weather saw the field and was like oh let's go Mm -hmm. we're gonna play yeah um, I should note, yeah, the, the sources for this, there was a couple Sabre articles. I didn't expect the Game 4 controversy that I found in here with the home run that wasn't, or the game-tying home run that wasn't a game-tying home run. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a Sabre article on that. There was a Sabre article on Game 7. There was a great Washington Post article on it. Uh, and the book I alluded to earlier was The Battling Bucks of 1925 by Ronald T. Waldo. So, uh, okay. to yeah. Check out some of those sources. There. Yeah, they're, they're, uh, the Battling Bucks book, uh, I mean, if you're a Pirates fan, I think you, sh- you should have it. Uh, it's, it goes into great detail. Great detail. Too much detail for, for me and some mm-hmm. things. But I found mm-hmm. a lot of other stories in it. And, uh, yeah, it's a very detailed account of that season. So... If you if you care to learn more, mm-hmm. well, I was interested to learn like that uh, the Pirates were kind of one of the first teams, probably because of you know, not necessarily like uh, smaller budgets because of like market issue or whatever, but just like the choice of being cheap. But like you know, I I didn't know that the Giant or sorry the Pirates were one of the teams to kind of first adopt the sort of youth movement thing with their development. Yeah, well that that whole thing with McCackney found really interesting and that's a the book really gave me a lot of more background especially on Dreyfus building the bleachers and whatnot too and <laughs> yeah. adding like yeah all of that stuff. But yeah, McCackney really was like a guy that was pretty ahead of his time just in the fact that you know, he was getting blasted for the older players not listening to him. So he was like, 
fuck it, youth movement, mm-hmm. development. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> yeah, watch me, watch the, watch me go now. And he won the yeah. World Series. Yeah, so worked there. out. So, all right. Uh, yeah, thanks for that story, Sean. That's uh, another episode of Sean Ned's new baseball. And until uh, next time, follow yeah. us on the on the interwebs or on the whatever or on wherever you do this. Give us a review. Give us a rating. Uh, you know where to find us. Yep, and thanks for listening. Till next time, I'm Sean. And I'm Eds. And we were bringing you the baseball. Go World Series. Okay, bye.